0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this live stream message from the Neighborhood Church. I'm glad that you've joined us. I hope you'll stick with us. Shout out to Isaac Hernandez, who uh, brought a message last week. I appreciate him sharing with us. And it is a great introduction back into the book of Acts. In just a few moments, we're going to look at the end of Acts chapter 4 and see one bright snapshot And we're going to go into the beginning of Acts chapter 5 and see a pretty dark snapshot. The contrast of these is what I want to look at this evening. We're going to see in this bright snapshot the building blocks of, you guessed it, solidarity, generosity, and honesty. That was our question that was just posed to you in the chat box. And then we're going to see... On this other contrasting snapshot, what happens after a lack of solidarity, generosity, and honesty? It's a stark contrast Luke, the author of the book of Acts, wants us to see in stark relief. So this evening we're going to look at these building blocks, solidarity, generosity, and honesty. And throughout our time together, I hope that we not only get a better understanding of the story that Luke is telling us, I hope that you find yourself invited into this story that God is still writing. I hope that you will explore the lack of or presence of solidarity, generosity, and honesty in your everyday life and that we could all foster those things together so that our community can flourish. So, with all that being said, let's pray before we look at these building blocks of solidarity, generosity, and honesty, and in Acts chapter 5, the lack thereof. Let's pray for these building blocks in our own life. Father, we are grateful for all it took to get each one of us here at this moment. We thank you for life and breath and all that we take for granted. But Lord, we also recognize that in our own lives and families and society, there is a lack. So we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would well up in us a sense of solidarity with our brother sister would you pray now for a greater sense of unity within our church within your family within our society lord hear our prayer lord we ask we also ask for generosity we know that there are many people that are struggling to make ends meet we ask that you would meet their needs, and even through us, that their needs would be met. Lord, to pray, thy kingdom come, is another way of saying, my kingdoms go. So would you help us release our resources to your care, to those that you love on the margins Take a moment to pray that God would well up generosity within your own spirit. Generosity of resources, of time, of attention. Oh God, that you would make us a generous people. Hear our prayer. And finally, Lord, we confess the ways that we have been dishonest with ourselves and with you. We confess and humbly repent. Lord, we ask that we would be honest about our own shortcomings, that we would be honest with how we're feeling, that we would be honest about how we're out of step, that we would be honest with others in our lives, to be vulnerable and share ourselves truly. O oh Lord, may we remember that we are known by you and loved by you, and that you have called us to walk in truth. We ask solidarity, generosity, and honesty in our own lives and in the lives of our families, our church, our society. We ask these things boldly in the strong name of Jesus, who himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. 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 Well, I want to read to you these two snapshots that could not be more different. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37 into Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. We're going to see solidarity, generosity, and honesty in full display and in no display. A stark contrast that Luke, the author of Acts, shows us. Listen to these words. All the believers were one in heart and mind. A better translation is heart and soul. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Yeah, I just read that again? There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, the profit, and put it at the apostles' feet. And then it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, that's his nickname, which means son of encouragement, He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's Luke's way of highlighting this wasn't just some rosy utopia. You can go ask that guy called Barnabas over there. He's a living, breathing example of what solidarity that leads to generosity can look like. But then we get the other snapshot, Acts chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Sounds cool. But with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Let's pause there. This kind of sharing that we saw in Acts chapter 4 was voluntary. It wasn't compulsory. There were other communities that had attempted this kind of sharing of property, and if you wanted to be in the club, you had to do it. But... What Luke wants us to see is that this was something that was generated by a generous God. And it was a very few people that had extra property, extra homes. And so when they would go and sell it, it was up to them what they wanted to do with it. They could give some, they could give all. So understand that Ananias and Sapphira, they could have done with their money what they wanted to. But there was some breakdown here, and it was pretty destructive, and actually pretty troubling, and actually pretty rare. But it's here, and we've got to deal with it. Let's continue. Verse 3, chapter 5. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself? some of the money you received for the land Woo! didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold wasn't the money at your disposal that's Peter's way of saying you could have done with this what you wanted but instead there was some kind of dark deceit and you lied to the Holy Spirit Wow something is going on beneath the surface I just don't know we have the full picture of. But let's continue reading. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7. So about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Then Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She said, yes, that's the price. So then Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also, At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church. Interesting that that's Luke's first use of that word ecclesia, the word that became known as the church, church. He used it here. And all who heard about these events. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. And we also say, what is up with that? The truth is, is that this scene in Acts chapter five is not only one of the more disturbing in the book of Acts, it's one of the more disturbing passages in the whole New Testament. And we're going to look at it here and try to make some sense of it in a bit. But first, as we get into this, uh, let me tell you a story. It's a story I heard in the news this week. It's a story of a pastor in Georgia named Eusebio Phelps who gave his Waffle House waitress, a girl named Hannah Hill, a life-changing tip. Shout out to the greatness of Waffle House. It all started with an all-star breakfast that this pastor, this bishop, ordered drove up to the Waffle House, walked in to pick up the order, and had such a lovely exchange and encounter with this young woman named Hannah Hill that he decided to give her a good tip. He gave her $40 out of his wallet. But that exchange was so pleasant, so nice, so encouraging, albeit brief, that they continued to talk just a little bit there in that Waffle House, And he noticed that she was pregnant and asked about the baby that she was expecting. That's when she told him that they were going to have a boy and that his name would be Samuel. Well, that connected with this pastor because Samuel was also the name of his own son who had died seven years earlier. So in that brief and pleasant encounter where they made that brief and pleasant encounter, connection. It stayed with him to the point where he thought, I need to do more than just the 40 bucks out of my wallet. I kind of want to share this story, and I feel that God has put it on my heart to do something for this young woman. So he put a picture and a story on Facebook, and the donations started pouring in. Sometime later, he showed back up at the Waffle House with a check the check was $12,000. $12,000 of donations that had poured in to make a little bit of an impact in Hannah Hill's life. So they called her she came into the Waffle House and she was floored to receive this money especially because she shared with him I'm not really the church going type, but I gotta tell you I had recently been praying That God might help me and my family through this. Now, it stands to reason that God had put something within his heart to connect with this young woman and then to not just feel some warm, fuzzy feelings, but to connect his heart with his hands, which is what true compassion means, to do something about it. And it led me to ask this question as I was reading this, like, why is this national news? And you know the answer because people don't get $12,000 tips at Waffle House every day. It's national news because it's rare, but I think it's also national news because you have this unique moment where someone shared so much with a stranger. But there is something... I think, interesting, and it's because a connection was made. In that chance encounter, this pastor saw a kinship with that waitress. Something as tenuous, maybe, in some of our eyes, as a name, but it brought in this familial sense that reminded him of his son to see this young woman giving birth to a Samuel. There was some kinship, some moment of solidarity that led to generosity. Becky I love what you said in the comments when you answered that question what is needed most in our society today generosity or honesty you said solidarity because solidarity if you get that right the other two will follow if we are united in purpose goals and desires big things can happen that's really interesting In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, that snapshot begins with that powerful statement that says they were one in heart and soul. This snapshot is what it looks like when you have the building blocks of solidarity, that oneness, then that leads to generosity. That connection connects my heart and my hand. If I see you as family, I'm going to share with you like family. And it stands to reason that They were honest in this pursuit. I not only see you as family and share with you as family, I speak to you as family. Powerfully seeing the movement of God rooted in solidarity. But then Acts chapter 3, we see what happens when a couple says, I don't think we really belong to this other community. Let's look out for the two of us. And then you see a lack of generosity. They still gave. That's what's crazy about this. But there was something insidious about the way they held back and the way they were dishonest. You see a lack of solidarity that led to a lack of generosity that led to a lack of honesty. And the consequences were dire. These snapshots provide that sharp contrast of what happens when these things can build up a community and what happens when they can unravel one. But let's look at that first snapshot, get a little more into it. Let me say this about solidarity first. Solidarity is imperfect, it's impermanent, but it is not impossible. When I say that solidarity is imperfect, understand that God is still working with the raw material of actual human beings with actual thoughts and choices and imperfections. So when you get a bunch of imperfect people together, you're not going to have a perfect community. Also, understand that it was impermanent. Not too long after the snapshot of Acts chapter 4, you have two of them, Ananias and Sapphira, kind of wandering off the path. The rest of the New Testament is actually a testament to the impermanence of this solidarity because people get into these old habits of saying, no, you should be like me, a Jewish person that has come to see Jesus. Don't be like these Gentiles. And the rest of the New Testament is trying to find solidarity with all of these different people groups under the umbrella and reign of Jesus. It's not only imperfect, it can be impermanent. We will not always do this thing right. But I need you to also remember the that it is not impossible. Why? To paraphrase the great Eugene Peterson, a pastor in the same place in Maryland for decades, he said, if you zoom into any church community, you'll find backbiting and gossip and anger and tension and unresolved issues. You'll find all the imperfections. But if you look close enough, you'll also see Christ. Christ in the praying and the singing, and the teaching, and the loving, and the sharing. Christ in the midst of a bunch of imperfect people. Because wasn't he always called a friend of sinners? He hasn't abandoned us. St. Paul will say in the book of Ephesians that we should be eager to maintain the bonds of peace and the unity of the Holy Spirit. Understand that we don't have to make Solidarity. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, but we do have to maintain it. My yard, covered in leaves and needs a mow, needs maintenance. I don't grow the grass, but I maintain it. Unity, solidarity, oneness is not made, it's maintained and the degree to which we yield ourselves to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who desires that we may be one, as Jesus prays in John 17, the degree that we say yes to His love and His community, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the degree that we will see oneness in our midst. Acts chapter 2 that Isaac refreshed us with last week is a story of the Holy Spirit who is always present. Y'all say, present. (laughs) The Holy Spirit who is always present in God's good world became resident, y'all say, resident in Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, within God's people. God always desired to give His very self, the Holy Spirit, To his people. We see this in Jeremiah, we see this in Ezekiel. The new covenant people, I'll give my law and myself to you. The Holy Spirit, who is present, becomes resident, and then Luke says, and this is what it looked like. They devoted themselves to each other, to the apostles' teaching, they broke bread, fellowship, prayer. This is what it looked like. The Holy Spirit, who took a diverse people and formed them into a kingdom family. They go through the ups and downs, the bumps and bruises and persecution. We find ourselves again in Acts chapter 4. It said, hey, this is how it looked. Through all of that, they were still one in heart and mind and soul. Solidarity is the divine desire. Jesus prayed for it. The Holy Spirit has made it. We've got to maintain it. Here's how. Would you... Dare to see each person as family. We talk a lot in our church that when Jesus says, Love your neighbor as yourself, and he tells stories like the Good Samaritan, he says, Yeah, even them. Yeah, even them. Wait, I'm supposed to bless my enemies and pray for them who persecute me? Yeah. In the kingdom of God, he's rezoned our neighborhood so that every person we encounter is no longer someone to be. Feared, but a person to be loved. Would you resolve to see every person as family? One of my favorite musical acts is a duo called The Brilliance, and probably one of their most popular songs is called Brother. And it's a refrain that goes on and on, and it just says, When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. Toward the end of the song, he's saying, I see my sister, my father, my mother. How would it change our society if we began to relate to one another not as enemy, Democrat, Republican, that guy, that girl, that person I hate, but family to be loved. A Buddhist nun named Pema Chodron says this. Can you see it? True compassion does not come from wanting to help out those less fortunate than ourselves, but from realizing our kinship with all beings. I think what closes the gap from a good deed to real, sacrificial love that leads to generosity and honesty is to see all these people as brother, father, Mother, Because when you see someone as family, you might share with them like family. You might speak to them like family. If someone in your family needed 20 bucks and you have 20 bucks, you don't hesitate to share it, do you? Well, some of you might because some of those family members, you might not ever see it. Come back. But Jesus actually talks about that in Matthew 6, but that's another sermon. Let's get on to generosity because when you see someone like family, you might share with them like family. So solidarity says, I see you as family. Generosity says, I'll share with you as family. Basically, what is in view here in Acts chapter 4, when they had everything in common, is to say, hey, what's mine is yours. You see, in the first century, the idea of having like a lake house or another property, that was a pie-in-the-sky dream. The middle class was only about 10% of people. To be upper class is about 4 to 7% of people. So you had just the tippy-tippy top that had property to sell. Now, people still had homes because they had somewhere to meet and worship. But what's in view here is the tippy-top of people were so moved to see the poor in our midst, in this church family. As family, I'm going to go sell that property, I'm going to go sell that lake house, I'm going to go sell that extra set of wheels, and I'm going to bring the profits and proceeds to this community. Because if I'm going to bequeath this land to my son... And if you're in my kingdom community, maybe I see you as a son as well. This was happening in the early church. It's part of our DNA. Amy Sinclair said generosity because more love, more time for others, more connections, more giving, more, more, more. Would it not change our world to become a people who are so open-handed that we're so moved by the love of God that we close the gap What we see in the earliest church is the haves bridging the gap with the have-nots. Scholar Willie James Jennings says this with Acts 4 in mind. Can you see that? Money here will be used to destroy what money normally is used to create. Distance and boundaries see, God works with boundary-breaking, sacrificial love. We use money in our society to go to the gated community, to separate ourselves from the have-nots. But what is happening in Acts chapter 4, when solidarity begets generosity, it breaks down what money normally creates. I'm going to break down the distance between you and I because we're family. I'm going to break down the boundaries between you and I because we're family. Friends, this happens a lot in the neighborhood church. People radically, generously share what they have. My goodness, in Pastor Appreciation Month, you are already so generously sharing with Pastor Bud and I, and it floors us and it moves us. We don't earn it. We don't think we deserve it but you are such a generous people. One of the things I love most about our church is when we have these crazy goals to raise money. When we first started as the neighborhood church four years ago, we raised over $20,000 in just over four weeks in the season of Advent. Who does that if not you? It's amazing what we can do when we say, God, thy kingdom come. So maybe my kingdom should go. It's a matter of discipleship to have these possessions, but not to let them possess us. This is what you've tried to live out, church, over and again. In Lent, we need to raise money for the neighborhood table. We want to raise money for our neighbors and school supplies. And you give and you give and you give voluntarily. Voluntarily. The New Testament implores us to give cheerfully, sacrificially, and without compulsion, without grudging. We're to give freely because we look to God and we say, you so freely given to us. And so if this is my family that you've knit together, then let me honor you by sharing with these that you love so much. It's remarkable, isn't it? And then I love that Barnabas gets a shout out Because it's like, that sounds too good to be true. And Luke's almost like, go find this guy Joseph, a Levite, a guy from Cyprus, a guy that you can go and call up. And you say, man, why did you do that? And I guarantee you, he'd say, because the Holy Spirit has made something of us. These are my family. I saw a church sign in our area that says, count your blessings. How many of you guys have heard that a billion times, right? But I love this one. It says, count your blessings and then share some. Isn't it amazing how our relationships, our community, our society, our family would be transformed if we were generous in our vision to see you as family and then to share with you as family. I got to tell you that in this season, it requires more intention, not less. It requires more attention, intention, not less. It's going to take more effort to be one in heart and soul, not less. It's going to be more generosity as people are struggling and wondering how they're going to make ends meet. It's going to take more, not less. And the trick is, can we lean into the Holy Spirit illuminating our vision, illuminating and opening our hands so that we could live this out in our community. So what about honesty? Let's close with this thought experiment and the other picture that we read in Acts chapter 5. Here's the thought experiment. It's a wedding day. We have a bride and a groom standing before one another. They're dressed to the nines. You've got the flowers, the arrangement. The sanctuary is full. I know it may be hard for you to imagine, but let's just, for the sake of our experiment, imagine a land in which people can gather without masks and tightly quartered for a wedding. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Well, let's keep imagining. There they are at the altar before God and these witnesses, this community that has shaped them and formed them and brought them up and into this moment. And what happens if we get to the vows and the groom says, Yeah, I may be standing here with you, but... The thing is, I'm kind of not interested in just being exclusive. You think we can still keep this thing a little flexible and open? I know we got to sign a marriage license and it has both of our names, but this whole two become one and what God has joined together, let no one separate, ah, no, 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 man. I'm not so sure about this oneness. And the crowd starts to murmur. Now we get to the part that you're familiar with. Yeah, that whole in sickness and in health, in that richer and poorer, you have the bride start to shake her head and said, Yeah, I'm not interested in signing up for that. No, nah, you're on your own. No thanks. And then it finally gets down to this idea of, what are vows anyway? I mean, do we really have to be honest? Do we really have to profess this? Do we really have to live up to these things? Aren't they just words? What is the crowd thinking? What is the community that has walked with them to that point thinking? What are they observing? This breakdown of oneness, generosity, and honesty. They say those vows aren't vows at all. The absence of solidarity and generosity and honesty leads to a breakdown. And it's not just a breakdown of relationship, it's a breakdown of God's desire. You see, when we give up solidarity in a community or couple environment, when we say, I'm not going to give in to this oneness, we tragically have seen too often what happens when we let the desires and whims of others get in between that oneness that God desires. We've seen it in the breakdown of relationships and marriages. We've seen what happens when we let others into that sacred, intimate space. We see what happens when oneness breaks down. We see what happens when generosity breaks down and we don't want to share and we hold and we hoard. And what happens is our people start to die in the streets of hunger. We see it on the news. We see it on those commercials that pull at your heartstrings. We see what happens when we give up on generosity. And then how about honesty? How many of you have been wrecked by a lie that was told about you and the cat's out of the bag and you just can't seem to put it back in? We know interpersonally and individually the pain of that breakdown. Now I want you to imagine that there's this couple standing there at the altar. And the community that has supported them and surrounded them and has walked with them begins to gasp and murmur and see in this one coupling the breakdown that could threaten the whole Because you know when when people break down and come apart, it affects more than just you because we belong to one another. We're a covenant community. And make no mistake, the earliest church believed themselves, dared to believe themselves as the new covenant community that God had always promised. If we walked around the streets of Jerusalem and said, Hey, I'm looking for Yahweh I'm looking for God, where can I find Him? They'd point to that big temple. It was the second temple, the first one had gotten destroyed centuries before, but it was a big, beautiful, illustrious temple. If you asked a Jew, where can I find Yahweh, they'd point to the temple. And you'd say, oh, yeah, 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 the temple. That's where heaven and earth meet, that's where God's presence is, right? Right? Well, in the Jesus community through the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 God's presence became resident in a people, not a place. Okay, but what about the priests at the temple? They're the ones that are mediating the power and presence and they're the ones that are uh, leading this community of God's people, right? But then... There's this guy, Peter, and John, those that the establishment recognize, oh, they're the ones who've been with Jesus. These ordinary Galileans working powerful miracles. It looks like the powers with these people, maybe not the priests. Oh, the temple. Yeah, that's where we bring our animals, our sacrifices to make ourselves right. God's law was given in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we see what we need to do. And you have a bunch of people saying, hey, turn to Jesus, he's the only sacrifice you need. Oh, those sacrifices that are compulsory, I've got to do this to be clean. Oh, no, you have people giving up property sacrificially, voluntarily, cheerfully, Because God's at work within me. I no longer need to fear being clean or unclean. God is within me. Jesus has been my sacrifice. So whatever sacrifice I have is cherries on top. Oh, but the temple. Where you pay the temple tax. And there's the money changers. A system designed to take advantage of the poor. You can't afford this? Have a dove. But we've got to change your currency and change your money. It needs to be holier. And Jesus, we all know what he did when he encountered the money changers in the temple. Now in some living room in the shadow of the temple in Jerusalem, you have a group of people filled with God's presence, led by disciples of Jesus who were untrained, unschooled. You have people that are voluntarily sacrificing because if Jesus was crucified and raised and that power has loosened the grip on death, then what do I need to fear? Sure, I'll give you some of my stuff. And that place that was so known for taking advantage of the poor, here there is not a needy person among them. If we asked a Jewish person, Who's confessed that Jesus is Lord, where's God's presence? They wouldn't say the temple. They would say in that living room over there, where God's people gathered in the name of Jesus are living the Jesus way in solidarity, generosity, and honesty. That's why when Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we are the temple and that God's Spirit dwells in our midst, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you you together are that temple. I think we start to wade into these difficult waters. If this is a sort of temple... Maybe it stands to reason that there's something so holy and so acute in that particular time, in that particular place, that when this couple threatens to unravel this community, perhaps there's something at work here in this particular time and place that's so drastic and so rare and so unusual that a picture might begin to emerge. By the way, 1 Corinthians 3 is so much bigger than you as an individual being a temple and so don't get tattoos. That is so not what it's talking about. He says, you're where the very presence of God dwells. And maybe what we see in this breakdown is a couple at the altar approaching the Holy of Holies in a way that has so become dark and insidious and deceitful that something really powerful and mysterious took place. We want the story to be something like this. They were confronted, they confessed, they repented, and they said, yeah, to be honest, let's just give this. But it didn't go that way. There's something that we can deduce that they wanted to appear holier than they were. They didn't see them as family. They wanted to get a leg up. They wanted to be the holy ones. Maybe. They were generous. They gave some of it, but they wanted to appear more generous. Maybe. We do know that they were dishonest. But... You need to understand that there's not a universal principle here that says you lie, you die, because how many of us have done something more egregious, more lying and deceitful? How many pastors have fallen from grace that you see in the news that have taken God's money and run roughshod over community, and yet they're not struck down or smote? Hmm. Didn't Peter himself lie? three times and deny Jesus? What is going on here? Well, it's enough to say that this is a rare and unusual moment. It's also enough to say that God is not explicitly stated as the one who killed them. But Luke, upon reflecting on this scene, that sees this community watching this uncoupling, this deceit, Upon reflection, they say, I think this is some divine judgment. I can't get around that. I read this and I see some cocktail of what the earliest church perceived as a divine judgment, plus Satan's influence, who is always trying to steal, kill, and destroy, and Ananias and Sapphira, their own deceit and choice. And the best I can do is to take those elements together and say perhaps if the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life, perhaps God withdrew his grace and care and sustaining presence to the degree that they got what they paid for. I'm not so sure, but that's my best guess. Because we have this story and we can wrestle with this story. And we see that God isn't explicitly the agent. I don't know how Peter works in that. There's Satan at work in that. There's their own choices at work in that. But isn't it enough to say that we should humbly lean into solidarity and generosity and honesty not fearing the bolt of lightning perhaps as Ananias and Sapphira or whatever mysterious mix caused them to lose their lives so drastically and dramatically that day, but in order to say, God, your desire for solidarity and generosity and honesty is so serious in this temple space as you inhabit God's people, This community you're knitting together is so special, so powerful. Would you, God, in your mercy, help me to see them as family so that I might share with them as family, that I would speak to them honestly as family. I think the universal principle here is That God desires a flourishing community rooted in solidarity, generosity, and honesty. And to not have that solidarity, generosity, and honesty is to invite dissension and destruction for our witness and our very life together. It's that serious. It's that mysterious. It's not impossible. The Holy Spirit is with us and it takes more intention to lean into him, not to lie to him, but to lean into him. More intention, not less. So I'll leave you with this. Where am I not seeing others as family? And God, in your mercy, would you help me? Where am I not sharing with others as family? And God, in your mercy, would you help me? And God... Where am I not speaking to myself and others as family? And God, in your mercy, would you help me? We need not fear, for there is no longer condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but we need revere the holiness of the community that God has knit together by his Spirit to work at maintaining the bonds of peace and solidarity. And so, we pray God's blessing on us. We invite you who do not know Jesus to come and find life in Him. And that relationship involves a life with others. And I know that what we're doing right now on Facebook is not the fullest realization, but it's what we have now and together And so we invite you into this space of doing it together. We invite our neighborhood groups to keep connecting and meeting as safely and as wisely and as often as they can. Because we are knit together and enabled. May we build our community with the Holy Spirit in solidarity, generosity, and honesty. Would you go in peace to love and serve the Lord and others? Amen.